good to be here with you guys again, and my family got to come this time. I know you're more excited to see them than me, but I understand. Uh, but if you would, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 7. We're just going to be there briefly. Um, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 7. As you're turning there, I'm going to ask a question. It's not rhetorical. You can answer. So if you were going to pick a Jewish hero, the greatest Jewish man used by God... Right, we're not talking about God. I mean, we're talking about an actual man, all right, of the Old Testament. And so you can even picture yourself as a kind of as a Jew answering this. Like, who would be the hero of your faith? Throw out some names. There's well, I guess there are some wrong answers. If you say Paul, that's absolutely wrong. He's New Testament. But what do you think? Joshua. Joshua. Okay. And why do you say Joshua? God said, I'll be with you, be courageous, and go forth. Yep. Joshua's definitely the greatest military general that Israel had ever seen. Led them into the promised land and conquered all the inhabitants. Who else would we say? Abraham. Abraham. I could, honestly, I thought, of, if I was thinking that, I thought of three. Like, these are the big three that I think would be mentioned. Uh, who else would we be thinking of? David. David. The greatest king of all time. Abraham was the one I thought of. David was the one I thought of. I thought of Joshua too. I thought of Solomon. He's the one that built the temple, right? I mean, but you guys still haven't said the one that I think is Moses. Moses. I think Moses, when you look at his life and what he had, the way that God used him as the leader of Israel, right? He was the leader of the Exodus. He is the one that God used to bring the people out of Egypt from out of the bondage of slavery. I mean, he stood face to face with the most powerful man of the time, right, with Pharaoh. He was the one who God used to part the Red Sea so they crossed on dry ground. It was to Moses that God entrusted the law, and it was Moses who was the deliverer of the law and the mediator of it. It was Moses to Moses that God gave instructions on how to build the tabernacle so that the presence of God could dwell with his people and they could worship him rightly. It was, uh, it was Moses that when God was fed up with the Israelites being idolatrous people and was ready to pour out his wrath upon him, Moses was the mediator between the people of God and um, God himself. And God relented his wrath because of Moses' intervention. And it was Moses who gave us the five, first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. So I would argue, in which we can disagree, and we, that's fine, but I would say that Moses would be the most Jewish hero of all time for the Jews in that time. And so obviously Moses was a great man. He was a great leader. And he was a great prophet, and I think the greatest Jewish hero of the Old Testament and we do realize that he is just a man, right? He was sinful. He done things messed up. I mean, he killed an Egyptian. He wasn't allowed to go in the promised land. So he wasn't perfect, but he was a man of faith, right? He makes the Hebrews 11 hall of the hall of fame, the faith people. He makes that. He was quite arguably the most important Old Testament prophet and leader. So this morning, our goal is to take a look at the life of Moses, 
look at, and basically we're going to take a look at his first 80 years. We're more familiar with his last 40 when he was actually the leader of Israel. He led them out, crossed the Red Sea, did all these things, um, went to Mount Sinai, got the commandments, led them to the edge of the promised land. We're more familiar with that story, but we're going to take a look at his first 80 years and see how God prepared him to be the leader that he was. And it's kind of been a theme. If you were here for Sunday school, we were talking about um, that, that we were looking at Romans 10, talking about for those everyone needs to hear and how are they going to hear unless someone is sent and how, are the, and how or unless I, forgot, I messed up the chain um, how will they hear unless a preacher is sent and how beautiful it is those that bring the good news and the, and the theme was or what we talked about it was it when it says preachers it's not talking about ordained men or someone who's actually a pastor but that we're all preachers and watching the video it says that we're all called and we are all heralds of the good news it seems like that's been a theme this morning and I want to add a couple more things of what we are. And so I will read 2 Corinthians 5 real quick. One of my favorite verses, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So quick pause. If you're a Christian, this is it's talking, it's talking about us, right? We are the ones who have been reconciled to God through Christ. And it goes on to say, and those Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. And we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so, yes, we are called to be preachers of the gospel. We are called to be heralds of the gospel. We are called to be ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors for Christ. And so I read this before we get into the life of Moses to realize that whenever we talk about how God uses great men and women of the faith to build up his kingdom, he's talking about us, right? It's not just we have things that we can glean from Moses because like Moses, we are called to make an impact for the kingdom. And so we're going to look at the life of Moses and see the man or woman that God uses for his kingdom. So let's turn to Acts 7. And you're like, well, that's weird. We're talking about Moses, right? We should be going to Exodus. And we are going to be going there. And uh, we're going to look at this. Acts 7 is the account of Stephen, the first martyr um, that's recorded in the book of Acts. And we're looking at his account because he gives a nice summary of Moses' life. We know that Moses lived 120 years. We see it from the way that Stephen structured his, um, well, yelling at the Pharisees. And we have it explicitly in Deuteronomy 34, 7, which says Moses was 120 years old when he died. So no doubt, Moses was 120, lived 120 years before he died. And as we come to this, what's going on? is we know that back in Acts 1-8, right, it says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And so it, they, the Christians at that time were heading that direction, but they weren't going to the ends of the earth like they um, were told to do. And then actually the martyrdom of Stephen actually caused the church to disperse and to go to the areas which God said he was going to send them. But we get to here, and what's happening is Stephen is brought before the Council of Pharisees. 
and before the high priest because he was charged with blasphemy against Moses and against God. And so he, we're going to read, and what we're doing is we're going to take just his account of Moses and then go to Exodus and we'll continue on from there. But what he was doing here is he was saying to the Pharisees that just as you didn't, as your forefathers didn't listen to Moses and you or your forefathers persecuted the prophets back then, you have done the same to the, the actual Messiah, the greatest prophet that's walked this earth, the Son of God, the Messiah you've been waiting for. You killed him and did the same thing. And he said, you stiff-necked people, you're just like your forefathers who didn't listen to Moses. And then we know the story it didn't turn out well for Stephen, and he was stoned, um, kind of proving his point of them not following their own law. And so we read to see... Um, Moses' life here because Stephen does a really cool thing for us. He breaks Moses' life up into 40-year increments that we're going to look at. And so we are going to focus today on those first two 40-year increments before he actually became the leader of Israel. So we read in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. And at this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted, adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds." When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush, and when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt." This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And so here, Stephen has broken up Moses' 120-year life into three 40-year increments. So from the time that he was born until the time that he had killed the Egyptian was 40 years. So he was 40 years as a prince. Years 40 through 80, that's when the prince 
fled to the land of Midian and for 40 years lived in the wilderness or lived as a shepherd uh, to the east of Egypt in Midian. And so 40 years as a prince, 40 years as a shepherd, and 40 years as the deliverer and leader of Israel. All right, so with that said, so we got the whole story in one good chunk here from Stephen. Let's turn to Exodus 1. And we're going to hit some highlights. We're going to be going through about two and a half chapters. And so we will see the first 80 years of Moses' life this morning. And the whole time asking ourselves, what can we glean from how God acted? And how can we glean from Moses to apply to our lives so that we may be better used for God's kingdom? And so when we turn to Exodus 1, we see, first of all, in Acts chapter 7, whenever it said, But at this time the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased, multiply in Egypt. Moses starts out writing here in Exodus 1. He starts by showing that God's promise, and God is a faithful God who is fulfilling his promise, and we're getting the setting of what is happening in Egypt before Moses comes on the scene. So we are told that in verse 5 that all the descendants of Jacob were 70 70 persons, that Joseph, all of his brothers, they had died, but Israel was continuing, they were fruitful, they increased greatly, and that they multiplied and were exceedingly strong. So we see in this first part that God is fulfilling the promise that he made back to Abraham, that he will be a great nation, that he will have descendants as numerous as the stars. And then as we get to um, verse 8, we see something that's kind of setting the tone for the rest of the book, that things aren't going really well right now. In verse 8, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And so if you think about back about the story of Joseph, right? Joseph was, well, if he was your brother, you probably wouldn't really like him, right? Out of all the sons, he was the father's favorite. His father gave him really cool gifts, gave him the coat of many colors, and like Joseph just didn't let that be, right? He actually would go out into the field and tell his brother, show off his coat, and then he tells him about the visions that he had, right, where the brothers were bowing down to him. This is a good lesson, Malachi. And so what happened, what happened, right? They're like, let's kill him. And so they tried to kill him. They threw him in a pit to die, but then the older brother, Reuben, is that right, Reuben? You know, I was like, well, that's bad. We shouldn't kill him. It's, bad. it's much better to sell him into slavery. And then we get some money out of it too. So they sell him into slavery, right? And kind of one of the themes that you see constantly throughout Scripture, some things that were meant for evil, God had turned for good, right? And so Egypt goes into the or Egypt. Joseph goes into the house of Potiphar, right? Gets wrongly accused of trying to hit on Potiphar's wife. He goes to prison, meets a couple people that are in prison with him, right? And he, they, knows, they know that Joseph can, can interpret dreams. They interpret the dreams of the two guys that were in there, one that's going to die, one that's going to be restored. And then the one that's restored is the cupbearer, right? The one that was restored was the cupbearer. And he goes back to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's having these weird dreams about skinny cows and fat cows and doesn't know what they mean. And so then they bring Joseph up to interpret the dreams. Joseph interprets the dreams. Right, that there's going to be years of famine, or there's going to be years of plenty, but a year like a great famine is coming, and because that he was able to interpret the dreams, he was given, um, you know, the wisdom by God to be able to interpret the dreams, how to counteract that. 
Like he becomes second in all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, right? And then his, we know the story, his brothers come into Egypt because there's a, when the famine hits, Joseph provides for him. And so they come, his father Jacob dies, they give him a royal burial. And so the people at this, in the time of Joseph, they were very much favored by Egypt and they increased greatly under, he was second in all of Egypt, next only to Pharaoh. But in verse eight, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So God is fulfilling his promise made to Abraham and they are growing mightily, but it's not looking good now. There's a new king over Egypt. And so what does he say? And he says, and he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And so here you see that they're no longer a favored people. They are actually trying to suppress what God has promised to them. And so they set them, they sent them into slavery, started um, dealing shrewdly with them, making them, giving them heavy burdens. <laughs> but look what happens. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Like, you see the thought, like the mindset of Pharaoh here, right? Like, make them work all the time. Suppress them, overburden them. Then they're not going to have time to do other things like procreate trying to suppress the people of Israel, but yet with trying to suppress the people of Israel, God still grew them and was still growing them, not to where they were just a little worried, but to, to the point where it says that they were in dread of the people of Israel. And so then the next step that the Pharaoh does, instead of just trying to suppress him, then he issues another edict, and he tries to get the Hebrew midwives to kill any son that is born of the Hebrew people. And these wives are these Hebrew wives are amazing, are they not? They directly defy the edict of uh, of the Pharaoh, <laughs> and the reasoning was because the, the the Hebrew wives were very vigorous in birth. They're not like the Egyptian women; they're very vigorous, and they have their kids before we even get there. Like I don't know why he believed it, but um, God ended up blessing the Hebrew wives, and I mean we get a couple of them even named in uh, Scripture: Shep, Shepara and Pua. And so after that, he goes a step further, and it's not just the midwives, but he says to all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast them into the Nile. Right? And so Moses was born within this setting. He was born in a setting where he was supposed to be slaughtered upon birth. Upon birth, throw him in the river. Right? Scary, sinful, evil stuff. Like I don't want to get too far on a tangent, but... It's pretty sad whenever we don't see, we're not too far off from what Pharaoh is saying to his people here whenever we are willing to kill the unborn. But that's, sorry, I probably even shouldn't bring that up. That's a side note, not important. We'll move on. So Moses is born under this edict. And then, I mean, the story of even Moses's birth and the decision that his mom and his sister, like it's, it's strange, and I think only the power and sovereignty of God it makes this work. And so he was born under the edict that he, should, that he would die. 
right? When he was, they were able to hide him for three months. And then after three months, what was the plan? We were going to put him in a homemade basket and send him down the river. All right. And so they send him down the river and the, his, Moses' sister says, uh, tells his mother, I will go and I will see what happens to him. So I don't know if it's just happenstance that the Pharaoh's daughter happened to be coming down to the river to bathe or if they knew something about Pharaoh's daughter that she wasn't like her father. Not sure, but the decision was to send the baby down the river. That's safer than being a male newborn in this time. So they send him down the river. <laughs> and, I mean, can you picture it? He's, the baby's going down the river. He gets stuck. Pharaoh's daughter picks him up. Moses' sister walks up to him. And a Hebrew woman slave addresses the princess of Egypt. Says, what do you want to do? You want me to go find someone to feed the baby? Like if she followed the, the edict that her father had put out, what is she supposed to do with the baby? Take him out of the basket, throw him in the river. But she ends up saying, yes, go find a wet nurse for me. Go get a nurse for me that can feed the child. And who, who ends up coming and feeding the child? Moses' own mother. And she gets paid for it. She gives him the wages for it. And then as the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And so then in between, so that's it. Uh, then, so Moses is just born, right? He's three months old. And then in between verses 10 and 11, 40 years pass, right? We don't know a lot of what's happened. And Stephen, in his speech, did say that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. Right? So we see like he is a prince of Egypt, right? He is apparently doing pretty well with it. And as we get to then as we get to verse 11, right, we're kind of asking our question, like Moses, he's a Hebrew, right? We, and we know the story, so we know the answer to this. But is Moses going to relate to his adopted family? Is he going to live on his life as the prince of Egypt? Or is he going to relate to his blood family, the Hebrew people? And it says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked and he saw their birds, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of, beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And so one of his people, he went out to his people, and so here we get the sense that Moses is already beginning to identify with the Hebrew people, right? That I do not know how he came to the information that these are his people. I don't know if he looked a lot different, so it was obvious that the Pharaoh's daughter wasn't his mother. Um, but he identified with his people, and he looked, says he looked this way, he looked that way, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. So then we know, we, we saw this in Stephen's account, the... Two Hebrews struggling together. One calls him out. Are you going to kill me as you did the Egyptian? And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled, fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. So we'll pause there. So there is the first 40 years of Moses' life from his birth to the time that he struck down the Egyptian, right? And so what do we see? What do we learn about God in this? I think we see quite clearly the sovereignty of God through all this. What you talk, whenever we're talking about God 
God's promise to Abraham to be fruitful and to, that they're going to be fruitful, that they're going to multiply, and he's going to make of them a great nation. We see that, right? Even in the circumstances most dire, where they are suppressed, where they are put into slavery and tried to keep, trying to keep them from procreating, and to the point where they're going to try to even kill off. But then we have hero that we have heroes like the midwives, midwives who defy the most powerful man in the world's orders. And Israel continues to grow. We see God's sovereignty in this. We see God's faithfulness um, in the growth of his people. We see that he protects, we see that God protects and he preserves his people through the preservation of God's people and through the uh, preservation of the one we know who he is going to call to lead them out of this slavery and this uh, suppression. And we see that God is sovereign even over the most powerful man in the world, right? We survey God who is more powerful than all the kings, all the authorities on here. So we see that. What do we see about Moses? We see that he is a born as a baby to be slaughtered who becomes the prince of Egypt. All right, we see to some extent he realizes that he is to be the deliverer of Israel. He relates to his people. He goes out to his people who are being suppressed. And we see that he acts presumptuously. And his actions, as we're going to see, set him back 40 years. And so I think we see from Moses, here's an example of something that we're not to do. Um, We see what happens when we take something out of God's hands and we try to speed up the process instead of letting God's work play out we want to make things we think that we know better that we can do it quicker we don't have the patience and in Moses's case and when we try to do this it ends in total catastrophe where Moses has to flee and go into hiding in the wilderness and it sets his life back 40 years but just as God has a plan to use Moses right God has a plan for us I think when I read this and right, obviously Moses was set out to, to do good works, to do many things for the kingdom of God. I think of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, pre- God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. And so just as Moses, God has a plan for us. God had a, has a great plan for Moses to be the deliverer of Israel, and God has a great plan for us. But rather than try to speed up the process and take things into our own hands like Moses did, we are to, as David says in Psalms 27, 14, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And as he again says in Psalm 37, 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. So we see the first 40 years of Moses' life, from birth to the killing of the Egyptian. And we see that, I think it's Moses acted a little prematurely, and um, God had not yet called him to be the leader of Israel. God had not yet um, raised him up to do that. And so now, it's the first 40. We'll see the next 40. And so at this point, he is being sought after to be killed by Pharaoh. And so he flees east across the Red Sea or around it, not sure, but he flees east to the land of Midian. 
And we will pick up there. And so we were at verse 15, it says, and at the end of verse 15, and he sat down by the well. And so he's in Midian, he's sitting at this well, hiding from Pharaoh. And so then he meets Jethro's daughter. So there was a Midian priest who had seven daughters. They came to the well to water their flock, and then they run into problems. The other shepherds would not allow it, and it said that Moses stood up and saved them. So it sounds like it wasn't just that you can't water your flock. There was a little bit more forcefulness to it. Moses saves uh, Jethro's seven daughters. The daughters return back home. They tell their father what had happened, and... Jethro says, why did you not invite him to the house? Bring him here so that he can eat with us. And apparently, you know, Sunday night dinner went pretty well because it says that Moses, you know, was content to dwell with the man. And I guess Jethro was, um, he was impressed with Moses to the point where he says, here, marry one of my daughters. And it says that he had a son and named him Gershom, or as Stephen told us, that he had two sons. And so for, in the 40 years that we see, Moses saves Jethro's uh, daughters and flock. He marries Zipporah. He has a family. And then as we get to the end of chapter 2, we get into some good stuff. Picking up in verse 23, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So quick word. All right, this wasn't a surprise to God, right? We are all in agreement. This isn't something that God wasn't aware of, that he was made aware of. This is an indication that God is getting ready to act. God is getting ready to do something. And we know what that is, right? God is getting, to re getting ready to raise up a deliverer. He's getting ready to raise up Moses to lead the people to their, out of captivity, out of slavery. And so how does God act? We get to chapter 3 and we have the account of the burning bush. And don't miss this first Verse of chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. The prince of Egypt is now a shepherd of another man's flock. It's not like Abraham who had riches in livestock and, you know, that's a good thing. He was the shepherd of another man's flock. And as he is taking these, the flock over to graze and to water them, God speaks out from a bush. And this, this, this scene always cracks me up, like Moses, and the way that it words it. Um, like the, mo, the, burnt, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Like, okay. So he turns to the bush, right? He approaches, and God speaks to him. And it says it's holy ground, right? Because he's in the presence of God and wherever God is, it's a holy place. And he says, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians 
and to bring them out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then down to 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you. So we look at this, we have a prince of Egypt who has become a shepherd of another man's flock. And we see that God calls Moses, he is acting, he has a plan to save his people, and the man that he calls is Moses. And we look at Moses' response whenever God says, you are that man, you are the one to deliver Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. And his response is, who am I that I should go? And so the question of why did Moses have to spend 40 years in the wilderness? 40 years, why did he have to go from a palace to a tent, from a prince to a shepherd to be the leader of Israel? I don't think Moses as a prince, the response would have been, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Who am I to lead these Israelites? We see whenever he was a prince, he acted in a, like he killed the Egyptian, right? He took action right there to fix it. And God had to take him from being a somebody as a prince of Egypt and had to bring him to be a nobody as a shepherd of another man's flocks to prepare him to become the greatest leader that Israel has ever had. Right? God had to take him and teach him, I think, a lesson in humility. Right? And we know Moses learned this lesson in Numbers uh, 3-2 maybe. It says Moses was the meekest man or the most humble man that has walked the face of the earth. And it took God, or it took Moses 40 years in the wilderness as not a prince to be fit to be the leader of God. And so we're going to stop there. That is Moses' 80 years of life. For, first 40 years, he was born, he killed the Egyptian, he was the prince. This four, years 41 through 80, he was an exile to Midian, hiding from Pharaoh as a shepherd of someone else's own flock. And now God has called him to go back. And we know, we know how the story ends, right? Like, this is the good part where Moses comes back, says, let my people go. And they cross the Red Sea, they deliver them, and we see Israel grow into a mighty nation institutes the Passover, gives the law, becomes a great leader of God in those last 40 years of his life. And so, some final thoughts and application to these 80 years that we've just covered. Like, what can we take from them? What can we glean from them? What can we take from these so we can become better equipped to be used by God? And so, first, and we talked about this a little bit, is first thing is we need to trust in God's sovereignty. All right? And we see that from Israel's growth. We see that from the faithfulness of the midwives and how they were able to defy Pharaoh. We just see it over and over, God's hand in it, right? We see that God is able to accomplish all that he wants and all that he desires. And so if, you are, if God is calling you to do something huge, something way out of your comfort zone, like you can do that, right? The God who created the heavens and the universe, whenever Moses says, who am I that I should go? God told him, but I will be with you, right? We have the presence of God. We are able to do big things for him. 
but we're also able to do those small things, right? As we have talked about this morning in Sunday school, as we've seen from um, the TV screen, from reading 2 Corinthians 5, we are all called to be ministers of reconciliation. We are called to bring the gospel, to herald the good news. And so for some, that is a frightening task, right? Like I am 100% okay going up and talking to a stranger about this, but isn't it much harder? Like sometimes when it's talking to your brother or your sister or your parents, for some reason it can be difficult and it's daunting. But we know that we are able to do this. The God who created the universe holds the key to everyone's heart, who can change a sinner's heart um, towards him. So we can do that knowing that God is sovereign. We are able to do that. And we can do that with his presence. So first, we trust in God's sovereignty as people to be used greatly by God. And second, from what we see with Moses that we need to be aware of making bad choices, thinking you can accomplish things more quickly than what God intends to accomplish them. Now, is God able to accomplish anything and everything he wants with a snap of the fingers or with one word? Of course. Right? But God uses, he has given us the responsibility, he has given us the privilege of being the means in which he does his things about proclaiming the gospel and taking the gospel to the nations and all these things. And so many times, it's not that God can't accomplish things just by a word, but that's not how God normally works. He works slowly, and he works thoroughly, right? Because it takes time to mature. It takes time for sanctification to happen. It takes time for a leader to become an effective leader. And it takes time for us to become more and more like Christ and more and more being able to do those great things for God. So God oftentimes... Um, work slowly and thoroughly for our benefit. And so thirdly, become a nobody. Become a nobody. And so what I mean that by that, Moses was a prince, right? But he wasn't ready to be the leader of Israel as a prince of Egypt. He was ready to be the leader of Israel when God brought him out of Egypt to be a shepherd of someone else's flock and that is when God called him to become God's greatest leader, to be a somebody for the kingdom of God, right? to be used mightily by God. We first have to become a nobody. I think of Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourself, not looking to your own interest, but the interest of others. And so whenever we say become a nobody, that doesn't mean that you can't be important to figure in the community, that's not what it means, but it means to have humility that you don't look at yourself as better than others because of your title or what God has blessed you with, but you see that you are saved by grace, that you are the chief of sinners, as Paul said, that, and you're saved by grace, and you need to come to the mentality that your um, deserving of salvation is not greater than anyone else's. So you need to come to that understanding to be able to be used greatly by God. And James, James puts it as this in James 3, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And then in verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's the humble God uses, right? It's the humble that God exalts. And it's you know, the example that our Lord shown, right? That he humbled himself, took on flesh, um, and died a humiliating death on a Roman cross. And it's a lesson that... Moses, not two, three. 
it's a lesson that Moses learned in, I said 2-3, but it's 12-3, where um, it is said that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. He learned that lesson. And then, fourthly, which we've hit on this, but God has called all of us to serve, right? We're all ministers, and we need to be faithful where we're at. And so, I mean, we have this great example of Moses, right, who is the leader of Israel, who did all these amazing things. And I highly doubt there's anyone in this room that God is calling to do something like Moses did, to lead a whole nation out of slavery, right? That's probably not our task. But we are reminded of the faithfulness of the midwives, right? Who did what was right, who was faithful where they were. And because of their faithfulness, it's very likely that Moses was allowed to live because of people like the midwives who defied the king or the Pharaoh's edict and did what was right. And so God... We may not be Moses's, but God has put you in a specific spot, whether that is a secretary, a teacher, a farmer, a mother, a grand grandparent. You have been put in this spot, and you are called to be faithful. Right? And, you know, it's perhaps your name won't ever be remembered, right? Like you might not be Moses, or my favorite missionary is you might not be John Patton, who goes to a island of cannibals where the whole islands come to Christ, go from cannibalism to Christians um, because of his ministry. But John Pat almost didn't even go. He felt that the Lord was calling him. Everyone was telling him not to go. Don't leave your ministry that you're a part of. But his father came to him and said, I want you to know that from the time that you were born, your mother and I, placed you before the altar of God and said, if the Lord sees fit, use our son to be a minister of the gospel, to take the gospel to the heathens. And it was because of his father's telling him that, that he had the courage to go. And whenever he was leaving his father, it says that he, that whenever they stopped and he went around the corner and it says he, he looked back to get one last glimpse of his father. And he said to himself then and there that I will never in my ministry, in my life, I will never do anything to disappoint a father like I have. So don't miss the point of, you don't have to be Moses. You don't have to be a great leader. You need to be faithful where you're at. Maybe you're not the great next thing in, the, in God's kingdom and leading the thousands to Christ, but maybe your son is, or maybe your grandson is, or your granddaughter. God is calling us to be faithful, to, be, to make an impact for the kingdom. So this whole time we, we, we've talked about how, what we can look at, what we can glean from this so that we can be used in a mighty way for the kingdom of God. But we need to make sure that we are in the kingdom of God, right? And so I asked the question at the beginning, who is the greatest Jewish hero that you could think of? And we had, threw around awesome names, right? Some of them were wrong. We settled on Moses. But... We could have disagreement there, but if I say who is the greatest hero of all time, there shouldn't be any disagreement, right? Jesus Christ is the greatest hero of all time. And as, you know, in Moses even, Moses even said, told of him, at the, that we read in the end of chapter 7, that Moses said to the Israelites, God will raise for you a prophet like me from your brothers. One is coming that is going to be greater. 
And Moses, he delivered all of Israel out of this slavery, out of the bondage of slavery um, of Egypt. But a greater deliverer has come, right? A deliverer that rescues, rescues from the bondage of sin. So if you don't know Christ, perhaps you're feeling guilty. Maybe you're feeling helpless where you're at. And I'm sure that's how the Israelites fell, right? They said they were groaning out to God because of their, their slavery, because of their captivity. And perhaps like the Israelites, you feel helpless that, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I think. You don't know the sins that I have. But we have a deliverer in Jesus who is much greater his grace is much greater than all of our sin. And so you can trust in him. You can turn and repent and believe and receive him as your savior and find forgiveness because he is the great deliverer. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who saves, that you are a God who redeems, that you provided a way that, Lord, we can be reconciled to you, Lord. So I pray that for every Christian that's in this room, Lord, that we will be faithful in being your herald, that we will be faithful in being your ambassador, that we be faithful in being the minister of reconciliation, Lord, you have called us to. Help us to treasure the gospel, Lord. Help us not to take any of this for granted from, from salvation or being able to come together as a church to sing songs to you, to um, read the Bible together and to dig in, Lord. You are so good and so kind to us, Lord. And help that love that you have shown us and that kindness that you have shown us, Lord, flow out from us into a unbelieving world, Lord. So give us the courage, give us the strength, help us to realize that you are a sovereign God who goes with us whenever we try to witness, whenever we try to do great things for you. Help us to... Um, Help us to realize, Lord, that, that we have a responsibility as your children. Lord, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus and for the salvation that we have through him and the relationship that we have with you because of him. So, we, Lord, we love you and we pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.